This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of See Here is dedicated to Cop Shoot Cop. Consumer Revolt, get on it. Episode 70 of the See Here podcast, we exist to talk about music-related films. That's our niche, that's our genre, that's our raison d'etre. My name is Morris. I'm based here in Melbourne, and over in Brantford, Ontario, we have Mr. Tim Merrill. Welcome back. Howdy. How are you doing? Just keep out of my cave, dust myself off. Welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back to the show, Tim. It's been great to have you back. We're not doing terribly well about getting all three of us on the show because our uh, beloved comrade-in-arms, Bernard Stickwell, couldn't make it this time around, not feeling right. the best. Bernie heard I was coming back, so we left. I'll have to trick both of you into being on at the same time. Prima donnas of both of you. Anyway, you've come back for a really good episode, I think. We've just done an interview with film director out of Sydney called Underground Inc., The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock, Mr. Sean Katz. And we spoke to him about all manner of things in relation to his film and about alternative music of the 90s, about the artistic side of it and the commercial side, where things went right, when things went wrong. The film is not about Nirvana. It's about the bands that came in Nirvana's wake. Of course, this film could really be about any era of rock music, but this was Sean's passion. And I think it's a really fascinating documentary. So so what we're going to do is go to a quick break and then we'll come back to uh, speak with Sean about Underground Inc. And then after that, we'll be talking to you about what is happening in December of 2019 for episode 71 of See Here. We'll be back in a moment. Being a band, a band of brothers, people you love, people, you know, you may hate at times or you fight what you always respect and, and you, you know... And that kind of thing. That was the dream. I couldn't believe it. I never heard music like that. It was completely foreign to me and super exciting. Back in the early 90s, there was a sense of urgency. It felt like it was the 60s again. There was a chance for one or two guys to get in there, or girls, and actually change things. I quit college and I moved to New York to try to be a rock star. And that's all I knew how to do. The record labels in Los Angeles were just dropping money on bands left and right. But so many sad stories of, of records that were made and, and then shelved and they never got put out. And... I do know that there are a lot of great bands from the 90s that never got heard. I mean, multiple 
people out there, players and musicians and writers and singers and who should be giant. Now that's the 90s right there. Hello, welcome back to episode 70 of the See Here podcast. And on the other end of a Skype connection, Tim and I are speaking to the director of a new fascinating music documentary called Underground Inc. The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock. We're speaking from Sydney to Mr. Sean Katz. Welcome to See Here, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, first of all, I want to say congratulations on giving birth to your film, Into the World. You've been traveling a bit around the world, showing it at film festivals and the like. How's the reception been thus far? It's been fantastic. The Sydney screening was just amazing because there's nothing like showing it in your own city. The London screening I wasn't able to attend. The Germany screening I was, and that was awesome too. That screened at a, a festival called Reeperbahn, which is like a really big one over in Germany and to actually get to see it with like sort of a non-English speaking audience or at least an audience whose primary language isn't English. It was a fascinating sort of experience to see how the film plays over in different cultures or translates to different parts of the world in that respect. So it was very informative and, and very exciting. I imagine because so much of this music was very universal that it would receive a similar level of enrapturement, if that's the word, uh, around the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just wanted to make something that was an expression of how much I love these bands, and especially since there are often the bands that were never talked about in a lot of cases. Some were, some weren't, but we can get into that a little in a little bit when you mention more. It was an outlet for me. You know, the rich kids went to psychiatrists, and poor kids like me played punk rock guitar. Your raison d'etre for the film is made pretty plain, I guess, in the opening seconds where there's a statement that comes up on the screen saying, in 1991, Nirvana signed to a major label. Their first release with Geffen Records sold 30 million copies. And then underneath that, this is not that story. You wanted to make it clear that the millions of people who bought Nevermind did so possibly because commercial radio had gone and taken that on but didn't follow on with their younger brothers and sisters if you will with these other bands i wanted to ask you at that point in time when nirvana exploded or when the music of that era exploded where were you what were you doing at the time when that music hit i would have been a little kid at that point i mean i'm in my uh, mid-30s and at that stage i only would have gotten into the bands that the film explores probably only after high school because I worked at a record store it was actually my boss it was like this cool little mom and pop record no longer around unfortunately and it was actually my boss who had this really awesome ear and he was into all these bands that sort of only got one album out sometimes and no one else had heard of and it was very much after the fact that I discovered all the obscure bands but I think maybe at the time when I was a kid maybe I'd heard of some of the big ones and that was about it but I sort of came into it only around the 2000s say 
I think with a lot of the record labels, they were like junkies looking for, and all through the 70s and the 80s, you know, they were slapping, you know, all the, the pop veins. And then, the, you know, and then the 80s, it was all the, the new wave and electronic. And then they go through the 90s and, well, the late 80s through college radio. And they're slapping every vein to see which one will pop up. And it was Nirvana. And I remember the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio. And I was just like, really? These guys? Out of all of them, I mean, people knew all the labels were throwing everything to the wall and seeing what was going to stick. You know, it was almost like going to the horse races and trying to pick a horse and seeing which one was going to come out first. And and I was just really surprised that it was Nirvana. I'd heard Bleach and the stuff that they had done prior to Nevermind, but I was just surprised that they were the ones that stuck. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seemed like after Nirvana, I mean, obviously Nirvana weren't the only big, big band of that time. Maybe they sold the most, but it seemed like every major city had one big band waving the flag you know like in Chicago you had Smashing Pumpkins and, sure. and it seemed like each city they found that one big band so where they right. sort of go and raid each city and the film it's a hour and a half so I didn't have time to explore every single city but it goes to many of the different scenes and shows how there was all these pockets of amazing music happening in every scene in the U.S. and further around the world. It wasn't just the Pearl Jams. Going back a little before Nirvana, like Faith No More, okay? When Faith No More started, they were on a label called Mordam, which was really an independent label out of California back in like the mid-'80s when they put out their first album, Introduce Yourself. And then, you know, no one ever thought a band like Faith No More would take off. And then I remember going to like Virginia on a trip and we hit a record store and I bought a bunch of vinyl. And as a bonus, the guy at the counter gave me a two day advance release of uh, the real. It was a radio release that was just handed out to stations. And I took it back to Canada. And for about a week and a half, two weeks, I've been playing this thing. And everyone's just like, yeah, you know, big deal. It's Faith No More. And then it just struck. And that was like 80 when that hit and then I remember going to see Soundgarden on the Louder Than Love tour in a small club when they signed and that was before Nirvana as well so it wasn't kind of like Nirvana were the first ones to strike gold like there were a number of bands before Nirvana that started to kind of set the stage for what was to come I think oh yeah yeah definitely they definitely sort of set the stage for that too I think when I spoke to Sean from White Zombie she was actually saying that Nirvana were not the band that everyone expected for them to be the big one you know they were kind of seen as that's what i was saying in the scene they were kind of seen as like Soundgarden's little brother or something like that right exactly that's what i was saying like i was just blown away when they came on the radio it was like holy shit them (laughs) you said you couldn't cover every city due to the limits of the length of the film but every city in the united states it seemed in canada had its own organized scene already and it's even labels long before the majors tried to bleed them dry. I mean, like, for example, I'm thinking of, like, Minneapolis with Amphetamine Reptile and Chicago had Touch and Go, and there were so many different 
driving scenes that were already yeah. there that were fully functional. And it's so funny because it seemed like a lot of them really didn't need the extra stress or the extra kind of promotion of the majors because a lot of them, the more uh, realistic musicians said, I'm not quitting my day job, man, because you can't make a living off of music. That leads into so many complicated reasons as to why this would or wouldn't do that. I mean, in the film, you know, it establishes that there was this fully functioning ecosystem between bands touring, record labels putting out their records, clubs that supported their places to play, record stores that specifically released those kinds of bands. It was all these connections across, let's just stay within America for a moment, right. at least for the context of the film or this conversation. Especially in the 90s, Touch and Go became like more of a distributor as well. So right. with Touch and Go, there was all those bands were really able to thrive and I think it was just the money it's not realistic for a band like let's say I don't know if you want to think of a really crazy example let's think of like Steel Pole Bathtub I don't know if they ever signed to a major but like there were some really bands at the time who never had a chance in hell of being that next million copy seller but I think we've been driving around in a van for 10 years and barely struggling to keep the band live and someone says I'm old this is going to make it easier for you. I think it's a really hard decision to not go with. I think when I was speaking to one of the guys from Cop Shoot Cop, they said that they were about to sign with Touch and Go. And they said that they were approached by Interscope. And they said, well, if they're foolish enough to sign us, we'll just ask them to add two more zeros onto their check than Touch and Go would have had. And we'll go with them instead. That's a big theme to the really the second part of the film. Be careful what you wish for, you might just get it. And a lot of bands saying, well, you know, we thought we were just being taken out to lunch and they were being nice to us. But in fact, what they were doing was just taking money out of the studio advance. And, and then when an album sold 7 million copies after the first one had sold 15 million copies, then they would consider that a failure. And it really put a whole lot of unnecessary pressure on them. So I think that the title of your film, Underground, Grand Inc., the music side and the business side. And I think you've uh, really gone and put that together very, very well. You've made that quite clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I think there's one thing that needs to be clarified, too, is I think that obviously a lot of the musicians that had been doing it for years, they knew what was going on with the majors, right? It wasn't like suddenly some of them were just, oh, my God, we don't get a return. Like, oh, my God, we have to pay for that. I'm not going to say who, but I had friends in different bands in the United States who didn't have to buy groceries for months because they went from label to label to label, taking them out, (laughs) whining and dining them. And they did this purpose because they knew they'd never sign with these labels, right? But the labels were just so gullible. Like, they were just rubbing them up every other week to go out and, you know, and, oh, well, you know, we want to take you here, we want to take you here, yada, yada, yada. And there was a lot of bands that, sure, like, yeah, we'll go out and have dinner on your dime, no problem. Yeah. yeah but they knew damn well. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say any, any names. Uh, cows. Um, um. What? <laughs> 
Which label was the most interested in them out of just interest? I'm not exactly sure because they never got that far in the conversation. They just basically called it fishing. That's awesome. That's <laughs> they did great. Get, get one on the line. And, you know, and Killdozer was the same way. Like Killdozer, like those guys were no fools and they didn't suffer fools. They were just like, yep, here comes another one. One of the biggest ones of all was Steve Albini with Big Black. He looked at the labels and was just like, get the fuck out of here. I want nothing to do with you. Sure, there's frustration. Like you say, spending months in a tin can and going from city to city to city to play to, to a bartender if you're lucky. But then that doesn't mean your frustration clouds your mind to make a deal with the devil. You know, it just means that maybe you ought to look at going back to that career job or working in a factory. There were some exceptions, conversely to what you've said. And obviously everything that you've said is completely true and, and pretty much is the way the reality of the situation is. But I mean, you had a band like White Zombie. I mean, White Zombie were noisier and more messy and as big of a, a what the fuck than any of the other bands that I've mentioned so far. Well, and White Zombie landed up becoming one of the biggest of all. I mean, there's always, it's weird. There's always that like golden exception as well. So, yeah. When you see what they did with Soul Crusher and then you see the first major release they came out with, they, they look like the Go-Go's compared to <laughs> where what they started at. Yeah, yeah. So, Sean, that actually leads to questions that sort of been on my mind is when we hear the name alternative rock, we know intuitively what that means. But did you go into making this film with your own definition of what that might have meant? I mean, because I think like, once these bands got signed to the majors alternative rock just sort of became like a catch-all phrase that the big labels would sort of say yeah okay yeah this is alternative we can sell that i'll say two things to that which is that i didn't want to address the bands that were popular on alternative rock radio like i didn't want to focus on bands like what were some of the big bands at that time that were considered alternative? Like, I didn't want to focus on bands like, like Tonic or, or Live or, or something like that. I didn't want to focus on those bands that were on the radio all the time. I did want to mainly focus on the bands that I love. So in that sense, the film is very subjective. It's kind of like an imaginary museum. And we're sort of visiting all the rooms that have all the bands in them that I love that made an impact on me when I was working in that record store. So I was going over there with like, yes, I want to talk about, I want to talk about Cop Shoot Cop. I want to talk about Helmet. I want to talk about Failure. I want to talk about Brad. I want to talk about blah 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 but there were maybe were one or two bands along the way that i was introduced to through speaking to other musicians but by and large the bands that i love were the bands that were the obscure ones that i felt for my money like a band like course of empire i've always felt was so much better than some of the bigger bands that were getting those covers of Rolling Stone, for example, and a band like Course of Empire is just a band that, unless you're outside of Dallas, which in Dallas are still revered to this day, if you're outside of Dallas, that band is just like completely lost to time now. saw 
time I ever saw Curse of Empire, actually. I saw them open up for Killing Joke in Toronto years ago. I'd never heard of Course of Empire, but as soon as I saw Michael Jerome come onto the screen, I knew straight away who he was because he's been uh, Richard Thompson's drummer for many years. So I thought that was a, a rather interesting connection. Yeah, oh, well, Michael Jerome's played with everyone. Not everyone, but he's played with a lot of people. I mean, he, he was in the Blind Boys of Alabama. Oh, he was man. In, um, yeah, Blind Boys of Alabama. He played with the Toadies. He played with Richard Thompson. He played with, I don't want to butcher the name, but he played with another very poppy band that would seem like the last band before you can watch Course of Empire. But he's played with a lot of bands, is my point. He plays with Better Than Ezra now, of all things. So the other part of that question that I want to address is, okay, we've already gone and made mention that the film is Underground Inc., the music, the business. When you started out making this film, did you always mm-hmm. know that you wanted to address both sides of the story, where the idealism started and where commerciality knocked a lot of these bands to the curb? Or did you start out thinking, hey, I just want to do this great documentary about the bands that I love and the other side of the story just came out in the conversations? Yeah, it would have just come out in the conversations and the editing. I just wanted to find out what had happened. I wanted to find out how a band like uh, Handsome, for example, which was just like kind of almost a super group with her, which had members of like Helmet and Quicksand and Chromags and like a band like Handsome, they only ever released one album. A band like Sugar Tooth, they only ever released two albums. And I was always like, how can this be? How can these bands that have had such an impact on me, what went wrong? What what am I not understanding? And that's what I and these were bands I listened to every day for a good long period and that's why I wanted to make the films because at that time I didn't know as much about the music industry as I did once I started filming it and it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me at least in my head whereas now it very much does make sense to me and even a band like Brad where a singer like Sean Smith rest in peace I think he died earlier this year that's someone who has a voice that should have made him like a household name. But again, it was that weird place of these bands kind of I'm kind of going off on this huge tangent, but basically there are all these reasons why a band will or won't become really, really popular. That's one of the things that I landed up discovering through the making of this. It wasn't my original intention. So we thought, wouldn't it be funny to have a marching band, you know, with the ill-fitting clothes, a bunch of drunkards wearing marching band uniforms and midgets and carnival people involved in, you know drunkenly going down the street playing this wouldn't that be a good video for this song and then we thought oh you know we actually have a label that would pay for us to do something like that we could now we could do something like that you know what it reminds me of actually and i think it's really relevant is have you ever seen the movie barton fink yeah, yeah, I love Barton Fink. Okay, well, Barton Fink, there's this scene where he, you know, it's his first film he's working on, the first piece he's ever done for Hollywood. And then Michael Leonard, the producer guy, says, we want something with that Barton Fink feeling. <laughs> and it's like, dude, you have no idea what the Barton Fink feeling is because this is the first fucking thing this guy's ever done. They're talking this thing up so big. There's more gas, more gas, more gas, more gas, and then it just implodes. And I think that's what 
happens with a lot of these situations is that bands are just like, okay, we're out, we're done, like we can't handle this, you know. It's not the band's fault. I think a lot of times it's it's the promotion, it's the labels, it's like you say, it's a combination of a lot of things. I think, but I think a lot of times the bands were looking after Nirvana. Nirvana set a precedent as a goldmine, and all the labels were scurrying around afterwards looking for that next band with the Barton Fink feeling. You know what I mean? And I think that's the problem. And they put too much weight on bands and too much pressure on bands and the band said you know what we were piss poor playing in a lot of clubs but at least we were a hell of a lot less stressed out and i think that's yeah. the truth of it yeah look very much so but i also want to bring up the matter of maybe a lot of these bands were maybe they, they were not commercial enough for a label but maybe some of them were too commercial for certain types of mm-hmm. indies consequently like there were a lot of bands who did get to put out these amazing amazing albums like quicksand for example who put out these albums like slip and manic compression which would go on to influence an infinite number of bands later on They probably wouldn't have been able to record those albums in another set of circumstances, or at least an album that sounded like Slip. And, you know, a lot of the bands did land up really well from those advances. Some of them got to buy houses, and some of them got to release great records. So I guess it was a double-edged sword in that respect. One thing which I really admire about the scope of Underground Inc. is, unlike a lot of other music documentary, this isn't about one band. And if you might watch a film, pick your band, whatever, it always seems to be so isolationist, as if nothing else was happening outside the world of a band or a performer's right and fall and you've chosen to document a whole scene which was it a a really mammoth task to edit this to sort of seem cohesive because you know you're talking about lots of bands everyone's got a story and your overall story one big mountain is made up of lots of little mountains rather than you just talking about pick your band was that a difficult thing to assemble from an editing perspective thank you for mentioning that because i am like very proud of how that came together my editor jb who we were working between sydney and boston editing the film one thing that i'm really proud of about how the film turned out was the fact that it does manage to mention all these bands but somehow each different band that it mentions or, or focuses on adds to another piece of the puzzle regarding what was going on on like a macro level like across the board and that took a very very long time to edit i would say i mean it took a multiple like number of years to like three four years to edit that together and i mean that was partially due to the fact that i wasn't able to edit all the time and then there'd also be like there's like a lot of footage there was about 90 hours of footage which isn't an ideal thing to have but you know at the end of the day it was an amount of footage that I was naturally going to land up with by virtue of how many people I was speaking to and all the bands I did want to include. It was difficult, but focusing in on what you said about how all these bands like come into the picture, it's interesting because all of their stories 
And yes, there are a lot of bands, and you might think, okay, how is this forming a coherent piece? But so many of them had similar experiences, and I think we managed to show how when you put all these bands together, they all went through that same narrative of there was a a wave that they rode in on, which came crashing down for a lot of them. And that's how the film worked on, in that sense of how to construct it. It was like, this is all one sort of build-up, a collective build-up of bands that kind of were breaking their backs and blazing trails. And when there was that groundswell, when people did realize you could make money of it, yeah, they all went through that same experience at the end of the day. With 90 hours worth of footage, was there ever any opportunity to put it together like as a mini-series, like something like Metal Evolution that Sam Dunn had gone and done? I mean, I think I could have done that, but I think that that's what was taking so long for me to edit it, because I was... I was trying to figure out, like, you know, is this practical for me to try to edit it as a long-form thing? And I just thought, that's kind of silly for me to try, because I know what to do with a film, but if I decide to do this as a series and I can't do anything with it, then I'm, then it's really going to be a waste of time. So I think I just thought it was just the wiser decision to edit it as a film. And I'm actually pretty happy with how that all eventually turned out so yeah it, it's a, sort of a nice daydream but nah, no no tv series it's just a movie so inevitably we might get the director's cut oh god no <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know there were like other versions of the way things were edited together again those are just daydreams at the end of the day the, the film is what it is i'm really happy with how it turned out and no director's cut no <laughs> tv series i'm all wiped out from this one but i'm very happy with how it turned out though but there's something that happens i think when you um take a band a single band uh out of its community and then put it into the major label system the major label system it's you know the developmental process is is not really there anymore at all i mean it might have been in like the 70s when you know or the 60s when aretha franklin could put out seven albums and no one would know who she was until her eighth album a guest on a previous episode of the show who we'd spoken to, he was doing a documentary about the band from Seattle, the Sonics, and Mm -hmm. he was working like a day job in a sushi shop, and he said that one time Mike McCready from Pearl Jam had walked in and he knew that Mike McCready was a huge Sonics fan. He just said to him, oh, I'm doing this documentary about the Sonics. Would you like to be a, a talking head in the film? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Opened up his phone and found at least another half a dozen people who he could talk to about the band. You know, people like Nancy Wilson of Heart and uh, you know, a whole bunch of other people. Did you find at any stage that you found one person that say, oh, let me get you in contact with another 10 people? Or were you just knocking on lots and lots of doors? So most of the people that I teed up were all through like a agents and managers and publicists. Occasionally, I would contact someone directly. In fact, I'd say all the really big names of people in the film, I funnily enough, landed up contacting directly right through their own website, which is, you wouldn't think that that would happen. There were some people, I know that um, Pepper Keenan from Corrosion of Conformity, I had no luck with COC's agent, and I landed up being put through to Pepper through Sean Usult from White Zombie, I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm saying it right. If I'm not, sorry. Um, she put me in touch with Pepper. Craig Silverman from Only Living Witness and Agnostic Front. He put me in touch with Billy Graziade. 
from Biohazard. There were a couple of other ones. I think one of the guys from Filter was going to put me in touch with one of the guys from Tool. The schedules just didn't tee up because I was leaving LA a day before he was getting back from holiday. So yeah, there were some. There were never like 10, but maybe every 10th person that I interviewed would say, hey man, talk to this dude and, and I would go that way. You mentioned Craig Silverman of Agnostic Front and I found something that he said really, really interesting. I think he was talking about the whole cycle of you know creativity to plaudits to success to internal tension. And he said, if Nirvana hadn't been big, no label would have signed us in the first place. Mm. That obviously if the scene or if these bands would have existed anyway, there would have been a scene, but there would have been a very different story. But if Nirvana hadn't existed, was the time ripe for a band like that to the, the record companies were they looking for something like that? I mean, the beginning of the show, you and Tim both sort of said, well, wow, Nirvana was the band. That's really surprising. But would the scene have looked completely different if, I don't know, Cop Shoot Cop had been that band? Who can say? It's anyone's guess, obviously. Do, do you have anything to add to that, Tim? I can see now, looking at the pop sensibility that Nirvana had, there was a lot of other bands that didn't have that. There's no way in hell, even though they did sign to a major, that you were going to see everyone suddenly jump on board with the butthole surfers. I don't mind the sun sometimes, the it shows. I can taste you on my lips and smell you in but with Nirvana, yeah, I can see that they had the kind of right balance of enough teenage angst with enough of that pop sensibility to be palatable for the wider market. I can see that, yeah. A lot of it, though, like I say, is in hindsight, though, because at the time, I was just, I was really surprised that they were the one. If I was a betting man at the time, the one band that I would have put all my money on was Fishbowl. Fishbone was the band to me that I thought had the widest market, like the widest appeal. And and they could play with anybody. And they did play with anybody. They were the band that I figured if there was going to be a band that was going to be vindicated or kind of held up and everyone would say, yeah, you're right. Like, this is the shit. I figured it would be Fishbone. And unfortunately, yeah. like, that was kind of a tragedy in itself. But that's another, another story. I tell you what, speaking of Fishbone, and just before I get on to my response regarding Fishbone, just a little fascinating bit of trivia that basically no one knows do you know who craig silverman's father-in-law was no sterling morrison from the velvet underground oh wow lady Godiva dressed so demurely that's the head of another curly head boy cock royalty yeah, amazing. It's really mind-blowing the um, <laughs> things that landed up in my head from just the conversations that weren't in the film. And actually, he mentioned the thing about his father-in-law being in the Velvet Underground when he was going off on a rant about the bands who came up in the 2000s who were trying to copy that drugs and art kind of style of garage punk you know how there were bands like brian jonestown massacre and those kind of bands you mean he actually couldn't remember the name of the band at the time he was trying to remember he was talking about the heart yeah, right. 
and right. he was carrying on about, he goes, well, what was that band from Sweden with skinny ties and they dressed like the kinks? And he was kind of going on about bands like that. It became really big. And he actually said, my father-in-law played guitar in the Velvet Underground. He told me all about that scene. It was all about drugs and art. So to have a bunch of rich college kids, he was talking about like authenticity and things like that. But it was very interesting. Going back to Fishbone, I actually asked Walter Kibbe, right. who is definitely um, a lot of people's favorite who uh, watch Underground Dirty Day. Dirty Walt. Dirty Walt. <laughs> Dirty Walt. He, I was actually saying to him, why is it that, because he made a statement while I was interviewing him, and he actually said about how Columbia wasn't happy with what they're doing, and they're not promoting the band, they're not trying to make people aware of the band. He was expressing a lot of frustration. Now, this is just in my conversation with him it's not really in the film he sort of becomes kind of like an oracle of wisdom in the film but to me personally he was talking about this frustration that Fishbone were feeling and I said to him but Fishbone they're considered a successful band and he said to me we're only considered a successful band in the eyes of our fellow musicians and you could see that like that frustration and that disappointment in him talking about that and it is kind of heartbreaking that some of the these bands that were so beloved by other musicians even like the Jesuses, they signed to I think Capital, and their yep. all their last two albums, they came out like the literally the record company printed the album and just left it, and no one yep. knew that it was even out. That really comes down to why I wanted to make the film, because like I, I wanted to represent all those bands that just, why did no one know about them? Just as a side note, when you mentioned earlier Steel Pole Bathtub, mm -hmm. they did get signed to a major. They were signed to London Records. Mm -hmm. But what's funny is the last album that they actually gave the label the actual guy at the label said this album is unlistenable. They actually called the album unlistenable. they released it themselves but it's so funny how like i said again with metaphors it was almost like prostitution right where they hit these guys the labels were all pimp trying to pimp everybody and make money and then once they realized you know that they couldn't make the money that they thought they could and it's like well what have you done for me lately and they just kicked all these people to the curb right and it's like the day before they loved you to the end of the earth when they thought you were solid gold but then when reality sets in and they turn around and they're just like you know what was your name again that happened again and again and again to so many different bands but what you were saying about being respected and recognized by your peers by fellow musicians years and years ago i got to interview les claypool and larry lawn from primus because they were mm -hmm. opening up for fishbone and this was back in 92 mm -hmm. and this is right about mm -hmm. when just after seize the cheese came out and les was over the moon to be able to be on the same stage as fishbone and play with these guys every night and he said they don't even have to pay me you know, that's payment in itself just being able to be on the same stage yeah. and jam with these guys every night and now primus is monstrously huge and meanwhile fishbone would be like now like hey can we play with you guys so now it's vice versa like so many 
years later, and it's really interesting how it turned out like that. Yeah, I mean, the guy from Sugartooth. Sugartooth is like a band that, like, they're an amazing band who had a lot of musicians in their band. It had dudes who landed up in Velvet Revolver and um, Queen of the Stone Age. Amazing group of talented musicians. But, I mean, the guy from Sugartooth, he was telling me a story about the time that Rage Against the Machine opened for them. So it, it's very funny how these things happen, isn't it? Especially in 91, 92, 93, before Nirvana, like, really exploded. It was honest, and it kind of lost that once once that whole scene was commercialized. Um, and it really hasn't come back since. Now, one question I wanted to ask you was, did you ever think about approaching musicians for the documentary who were establishing themselves as kind of like setting up their own business models for themselves and not turning to the labels? Like, I'm thinking of bands in particular like the Melvins or like Fugazi or like Shellac, bands that kind of said they're there. You know, I know they want us, but we really don't want to deal with them because we can micromanage our own and we, we've set ourselves up quite efficiently. Did you think about approaching bands like that? Well, I interviewed Steve Albini, obviously, whose opinions are obviously very outspoken. This is kind of a bit of a tough one because a lot of the bands who initially said no landed up becoming involved later on by just even letting me use a song or whatever. So I kind of don't want to mention some of the names because right. it, it could potentially sound like I'm bad-mouthing them when I'm really right. not. But I prefer to just keep quiet on listing certain bands. I know that obviously after the interview obviously failure are doing exactly what you're talking about now and clutch as well i would mm. say i would yep. include clutch, clutch is huge like that category as well but yeah th there were some there were ones like clutch or steve albini who i interviewed neil fallon from clutch he, he even says in the film that like i know that i'm not ever going to see a dime from the records that i release with columbia and atlantic or whoever it was and i may sell 10 times as many of those records but the ones that i put out myself I can actually live off of those. So there was a lot of kind of blue collar wisdom that was being espoused by a lot of these guys in terms of how to actually, the nuts and bolts of how to actually turn it into a realistic thing where the only person you need to rely on is yourself. The bands that resonate the most with an audience are the ones that have a kind of a, a, a pure, unique mania about them. Like a very distinctive band with very distinctive sound, distinctive subject matter, distinctive personalities, that band is going to get an audience that is finely tuned to appreciate that band and will cling to that band for life. Well, I mean, like you look at, for example, Mike Patton's label, Ipecac, mm. that they run with, I'm trying to think of his partner's name, uh, Tom something, but they actually sign bands to a one album deal because they don't want bands feel like they get, they're going to get locked into a three album deal, like that they're, mm. you know, they're locked into something they can't get out of. Put out an album, if it's good, then we put out another album. And if it's good, you put out another album. And I mean, that's the same type of policy, like a guy like for example Tom Hazelmeyer of Amphetamine Reptile that's the way he always worked with Helmet and the Cows and everybody that came through they put out an album and if it stuck and people wanted more the idea that and it's ludicrous now that back in the 90s there were bands signing to like five album deals you want a slice of cake and you know and they're giving you the whole bake and the expectations that come with that is overwhelming yeah I heard two sides of that story in regards to a 
was fun. So, I mean, I know that like a band like Screw, who would have signed to Metal Blade, which was a, a small indie label, Adam Grossman from uh, Screw, he said that Metal Blade wanted to sign him to an eight-album deal, and apparently he wasn't even getting a whole lot of love from that label. But there were other bands who said that in reality there was no such thing as a three-album deal or however many albums, because a label always had a way out of signing you. So I think even a band like the Royal Trucks, who really right. got like, I wouldn't even venture to say how much their advance was. It was more than 1.2. I think they got might have even gotten like a 1.3 or, or even higher, 1.3 million deal, something like that. You know, the label could always buy them out if they weren't happy with how they were selling. So yeah, it existed and it didn't exist. I think it just depended on if, if you, it depended on a obviously if you sold but also another a really big thing which i think isn't being mentioned is that it depended if you knew the right people so for example michael goldstone who worked for sony who represented like ozzy osbourne and rage against the machine and pearl jam he represented these really big names at sony and then he went and signed pansom which was the peter mengade from helmet and tom from quicksand and guys from chromags and those bunch of people Michael Goldstone signed Handsome. And then right after they recorded their album, right before that album came out, Michael Goldstone announced that he was quitting Sony to go take a job at DreamWorks. And when I was talking to Jeremy from Pansom, he was saying he remembers that meeting in his office and he said his heart sank and he remembered thinking, well, that's it, we're done. Who is going to be our champion at this enormous multi-corporation? And so I think a big thing is who you know and who can champion you and be your representative in these kinds of companies. It's really hard to pinpoint what a spot it would be, but was the end of the 90s, like at that point where a lot of things broke down because bands didn't have the financial models to succeed, like you know, Clutch did independently or another artist artists who I guess wouldn't have necessarily fit into the mold of the film Annie DeFranco who made being independent really work for her but was it at that point or shortly after where the whole big record label business sort of started to sink towards the end of the film they make mention that well we don't have to do that anymore and if you want to join on a big label then you're a bit of a chump I think it's Steve Albini who makes the analogy to imagine you want to play tennis and the big company is going to sell you this huge box full of 10,000 items <laughs> but all you really need is a ball and a tennis racket and the modern musician yeah. would only take the ball and the tennis racket as it were but was that the point where the whole record label system started to break down would you say it's in relation to that look i mean i'd say that at a certain point a lot of these big bands like you know smashing pumpkins and Soundgarden were kind of closing up shop and so a lot of those bands were like calling it a day and then i think at the same time a lot of even bigger corporations were starting to buy up companies like sony i think like seagroms or something started to buy them up and there was a lot of big shark eat little shark happening around that time there was like uh, it was going from like what like geffen to geffen interscope to Geffen 
Gaffin Interscope with like, what is it, like A&M or something. And like the writing was on the wall. Like I think Dave Windorf said that his record company in 1999 had been sold like four times. And it was just this writing on the wall that everything was about to stop because a lot of these bands weren't selling that experimentation, which the industry allowed for for that decade, came to an abrupt halt because of how these companies were all being bought up at that point in that time. What's happened since the collapse of the physical media is that now bands are seeing, hey, we can get by great just by playing shows and running a website and selling shirts and records directly to our audience. So what's next for the film? Are you still uh, going to be showing it in film festivals or is it imminently going to be on streaming services or home media? Okay, so uh, the film will be premiering in the US next year and I, I mentioned that because a lot of people have been asking me that on the uh, Facebook page which you can find by going to facebook.com backslash underground incorporated full words there and um, there will be that early next year and then I have a screening in Canberra in December for the National Film and Sound Archive which I'm really excited about playing at and I'll be attending their screening and doing a Q&A afterwards hoping to get it like out much wider like streaming or maybe even streaming with a few other surprises along the way maybe halfway through next year so that's kind of what my goal is i can't for definite say if i will reach that goal dead on because of the nature of how this film is being made just like me myself and i doing it that's what i'm aiming to do we wish you a lot of success with that because it's definitely a film that will not only appeal to people who were into that scene at the time but even as myself who was listening to other stuff but i just found it a really fascinating document and now as we said before we started recording there are bands in there that i want to now go and listen to you know like you know failure i had heard a bit of brad but think i need to sort of go return to that Jawbox. wow that was a band which i really enjoyed hearing in the film i think that's something that i want to search out just got back together again for a reunion for the first time in so many years they just played i think a couple of months ago so many of the screenings that i've had of the film and it's maybe screened like seven or eight times so far every time it screens like there are people who come up to me and there's like the secret like so Cop Shoot Cop is one of the bands that the film features pretty heavily. It sort of becomes part of the main final arc of the film. And when people come up to me at screenings, it's like there's a secret handshake for Cop Shoot Cop bands. It's like they're the band who everyone loved, thought that they were the only person who had ever heard of Cop Shoot Cop. But it is amazing how many people come up to me and say, oh, my God, you've heard of Cop Shoot Cop too. So they were, they were kind of like, I think there are a lot of fans out there who think that they're the only person who's ever heard of them so to all those people out there we all love cop shoot cop consumer revolt baby oh yeah <laughs> hey i was gonna say sean you've listened to the firewater stuff as well right i think the firewater albums uh, time release they were a little bit too kind of world music for my particular taste incredible <laughs> musician and incredible songwriter i mean his lyrics are amazing but personally for me i wasn't i didn't really ever get into firewater right and the other one that they did the side project too that was really incredible was Motherhead and they only Motherhead put up Bob. yeah 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 
Yeah, but they only put out one album, but it was uh, David Umet, and that was amazing live. I think you can find footage on YouTube that's pretty incredible. I've never actually heard Mother Headbug. I, I know that um, Roy Mayorga from Stone Sour uh, was talking about Mother Headbug. To me, that's how I found out about them. Actually, for the diehard Cop Shoot Cop fans out there, there was a album that got brought out, which wasn't under the name of Cop Shoot Cop. So it had their other singer on Nats, uh, Jack Nats, who was like singing right. on all the songs. Do you remember the name of what they were called? No, I'm trying no, to no, no, I know, I know the album. I can see it, but I forget the name of it now, right offhand. What's happening next for you? That's not related to this film. Are you sort of starting to think about another era of music, or even a film of, uh, on a different subject? I'm going back to daydreaming. I'm going back to just thinking up things that I'd like to make, but I never really ever set out to want to make documentaries. Mm. This was something that sort of very much called out to me and, and shook me around until I had to just get out of camera and fly to the States. Uh, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the film was shot through 23 cities in the States. And uh, it was just me and my camera going from city to city. But that was something that just kind of happened the way it happened. But I, I don't have any major plans to do anything. There might be something that I might write that maybe I could shoot on a very tight way. But that would be... Nothing I've got my sight set on until I have seen this film through to the very end of its lifeline in, in terms of how it needs to get released and everything. So I have to focus on that full time for, uh, I'd say, at least the next year or two before I think about anything else. Would the Australian scene of the same period have had mm -hmm. a, a similar sort of appeal to you? I know a little bit, I should say, about some of the bands that landed up becoming influential to like the Seattle bands, like obviously like Cosmic Psychos. Oh, yeah, like Cosmic Psychos, who I think were actually a little bit after the bands I was thinking of. I was actually going to talk about, like, the scientists. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like, I know a little bit about the Australian bands, maybe, like, more like the 80s, because I know that they were very influential on the American bands of the 90s, but I don't know a huge amount about some of those bands. Thank you so much, Sean. It is early on a Sunday morning, but we're very, very grateful that you took the time to speak to us about underground ink and we'll be putting links up in the show notes to how people can follow what you're doing and if the film drops in a city near them you said that you're going to be debuting it in uh, the states in 2020 so people can search this film out at a cinema near them or hopefully in the not too distant future on streaming or physical media because it is definitely something if you're a fan of music history you need to watch it and if you're a fan of that era you really need to watch this if uh, really gone and summarized it well within 95 minutes which as i said earlier on i think was no easy task we really appreciated it Nate. it actually took me back some ways and looking at certain things going oh yeah right i remember that yeah <laughs> thanks i actually as you said that very thing i had this big smile on my face thank you for talking to me today it's been a hell of an experience making this but i'm absolutely thrilled with how it turned out and i was very happy to talk to you today so thanks a lot all right we'll be be back in a moment to talk about what's going to be happening on next month's episode of see here we'll just go for this quick break you're listening to see here episode 70 
we're back. Thanks very much to Sean Cass for taking the time to speak to us on a Sunday morning and uh, keep an eye out for his wonderful film, Underground Inc., The Rise and Fall of Alternative Rock, at a festival or a cinema near you, and then hopefully not too long after that to a streaming service near you. It's really well worth catching. If you're into the scene, certainly it is, and even if you're just interested in music documentaries, and we are in the golden age of music documentary, as our friend Eric Peterson is always saying. So definitely worth your while catching that. So, episode 71. We've got a few irons in the fire here. We could go the way of another one of two interviews that we've got lined up. Uh, Very exciting. Or we could do a film discussion, but we're sort of trying to work out the times. So we're not quite sure, but we'll put it up in the Facebook group. So join the Facebook group to find out what we'll be covering in episode 71 before time. And uh, we might even uh, start putting up a post to get some requests for... 2020 because we didn't do any of that for 2019 because we were still catching up on 2018 we were a little bit slack in that regard but i think it's been a good year for the podcast we've had some terrific interviews and some terrific discussions and i'm just glad that you're back tim yeah thank you appreciate it hopefully you'll come up with a whole bunch of really terrific picks for the next 12 months uh, if you wish to email us you can send us a, a note to see here podcast at gmail.com If you wish to join the Facebook group, then you can just go facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. You can download us on Stitcher, on Spotify, or you can go to our website, seehere.podbean.com, or you can just download us from iTunes or whatever podcast app of choice you happen to use. We don't care, just as long as you listen, and please spread the word that we exist. We're coming up to our six-year anniversary. Could you have imagined six years ago, Tim, that we'd still be here with no end in sight for the number of music-related films that there are out there? It's incredible. Yeah. Exactly. Like uh, like we just said to Sean, you know, six years ago, we thought, you know, how long can this last? And we're still trying to answer that question. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think we're going to be finishing anytime soon if we go by the level of new documentaries or new narrative-based films that are being released, even if we just focused on that and not even go through the classic archive collection of great music-related films. We're always, oh, yeah. discovering, always discovering things. Please spread the word. Sure. We'll, be here. we'll be here for a long time to come, I hope. As I said before, keep an eye on the Facebook group to uh, get details of what it is that we're going to be discussing in December of 2019. Please be nice to each other. Watch some great films. Listen to some great music. And until next month, look after yourselves. All the best. Cheers. Cheers.